You're listening to Freedom Christian Fellowship's podcast. I heard some good feedback. I also uh, don't want to lose anybody in this, and I want to give an explanation as to why we're even talking about this, because why would we dredge up something in the past um, that maybe doesn't feel like we're attached into it? Uh, Are we Jewish here? Are we a Messianic congregation? No, we're not. We are not. Okay. Um, But we need to understand the word, and more importantly, God gave these uh, particular two feasts, and there's seven in total, um, to give a reflection of his nature, of his heart toward man. And what we find when we look at these things is that we find an abundance of God's grace toward us. But more importantly, all of these things that God ordained, they foretold of himself and were fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And today, as we go through the festival of Yom Kippur, I'm going to tell you what that means in a second. I'm going to explain it to you. I'm going to give you some things, uh, two different instances in the Bible where they were celebrated. But we're going to talk about how Jesus Christ fulfilled it. And this is what I want you to see today. This is what I want you to walk away from. Is that even, even as Pastor Spud was saying, even in our times where we feel maybe distant from God, or we feel shameful, or we feel broken in our sin, God sees us differently. And He has set aside Himself to be a continual bridge of understanding that continually renews us to His heart and the nature of Himself back to us. This is really important. This is a two-fold step that we all need to understand. See, we can understand the grace of Jesus, that He covers our sin, but we also need to understand that it is God's heart toward us to continually mark us in His his own image. He is continually reminding us of who we are. Let me give you an example of this. I'm going to make it personal. I'm going to make it immediate, all right, because this is something that happened in the last 24 hours. And I always talk about this, so forgive me for using, using this again. But I, I have uh, five kids. I have one son out of those five. And my son plays soccer. And yesterday he was on the soccer field. And he plays defense. And my son is tall. My son is strong. My son is good-looking like his father. <laughs> it's amazing. He's a good-looking boy. Looks just like me. And yesterday while he was playing, he was doing something that was appropriate in soccer. He was defending and creating separation between an offensive player from the other team and the ball as the ball was going out of bounds. Those of you who are not soccer players, I get it. This is like blah, 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 Charlie Brown's teacher. But stay with me because I'm not talking about soccer. And what he did is he proceeded to box out this player. And right toward the sideline, right toward the sideline, this kid just reaches out and does something that's entirely illegal. It's even, it's even a, a, something that he could have been given a card for. As he pushes my son in the back out of bounds. And my son immediately rears up and gets in this boy's face. And I am from me to the front row watching this go down. And immediately, my heart and my mind go to, we're going to fight. You know, and, and I'm going, oh no, this is about to happen right here. And I see my son nose to nose with this kid. And immediately I'm like, calm down. Calm down. Keep your composure. 
Keep your composure. Why? Because this is a picture of understanding of grace. Because when God ordained in Jesus Christ to rectify the thing and the sin issue in our life, it was not just to cover the offenses that either happened to us or through us. It is to remind us about the one whose image we are created in. Do you understand? See, because me just simply speaking to my son and saying, son, compose yourself, I was reminding him of what he was created and who he is created to be. When we look at the feasts, when we understand this, especially through Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur simply means this, it means to ransom. To ransom. What we see is the twofold nature of God continually bringing us back into the, the revelation of his image. Let's talk about what Yom Kippur is. Yom Kippur would have been celebrated at the end of last month, September. It falls together with Rosh Hashanah, which we talked about last week. It's a 10-day um, series of events that starts with Rosh Hashanah, which is, again, if you missed last week, all it is is the, the celebration of the creation of the earth that brings us under the understanding of God as creator and king. It starts with the blowing of a shofar, which is a ram's horn. And then 10 days later, there is a 25-hour period of prayer and fasting that begins with the blowing of the ram's horn. During this time, it's set aside that no work is done. No food or water is eaten or drank. There's no any interacting with anybody. It would have been spent in a, in a place of like a synagogue or the temple, the temple courts, or even in a home where people would be reading from the Word. They'd be reading from the Torah, the Old Testament, and they would be praying. And during this time, what they would be doing is that they would be repenting from their sins. Now, there's a reason that God ordained Yom Kippur at the end of Rosh Hashanah. Because if Rosh Hashanah teaches us grace, Yom Kippur teaches us forgiveness and being created in the image of God. And during this time, the high priest, and this is where I want you to, to begin to tune in to hear this. The high priest would go and he would make sacrifice. He would sacrifice. There would be three animals that would be up for sacrifice. Two would be slaughtered. One would be considered a scapegoat. I'm going to explain that. A bull and two goats. The bull would be slaughtered and the goat would be slaughtered. And their blood would go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. Now I want you to imagine with me, if you have no understanding of what the temple or the tabernacle looked like, it was a construction given by God that contained several different areas. And once a year, the high priest, and only the high priest, would go into the very Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the mercy seat was, and he would sprinkle the blood of these two animals upon the mercy seat for the remission of Israel's sins. And he would go and make a substitutionary atonement for the sins of the people. And he would lay it upon there. And he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And it would be infused with fragrance. And it would go up. And the smoke could be seen going up from the most holy place. And it would go up to God. 
But then God also commanded the high priest to do something else with the second goat, the third animal, is this. It's symbolically he would go and he would put his hands upon that animal. He would place his hands on that animal and he would confess the sins of Israel on that animal and then tie a scarlet, a red cord around this animal's neck. And then this goat would be led out into the wilderness and be led out there and be let go astray. And as this animal, as this goat was being led into the wilderness astray, that scarlet cord would turn white. The scapegoat would go and remove the sins of Israel far from the camp and the reminder of the hearts of the people of Israel. That's what Yom Kippur was. At the end of the feast, after the sacrifice was accepted, the people would rejoice and celebrate, knowing that the sins from the previous year were removed off of them, never to be remembered by God again, and their names were written in the book of life. This is Yom Kippur. There's two areas that we see Yom Kippur in. There's two areas that we see, I want, to, I want to pull our attention to Yom Kippur. The first is when we see at the very beginning when Israel is freed, the Hebrews are freed from Egypt. And what happens here is that Israel is ransomed from Egypt. And they're taken and they're spared from Pharaoh and from the the toil and the slavery of 400 years of being stuck in a place that their sins led them. And here we see this in Exodus 32. After the people are led into the wilderness, Moses is called by God up Mount Sinai. And he goes up there and God is beginning to show Moses his glory. And he begins to write and tell Moses the law of his heart for the people to live by. And Moses is inscribing these things, and God is inscribing these things upon tablets. A lot of us look back in what we see and what we know about the pictures we see of the Ten Commandments, the two tablets. This is in essence, what is happening up in Mount Sinai at the top of this mountain where God is meeting with Moses. And then God speaks to Moses, and this is in Exodus 32. You might want to write that down and go back and read that later this week. God speaks to Moses and says, Listen, Moses, right now the people are sinning against me. They are sinning against me. And what's happening down at the base of the mountain is this, is that the people who are stuck and wrong thinking, and the brokenness of 400 years of captivity have begun to grumble and complain to Aaron, Moses' brother. They asked Aaron where Moses is. He's been gone so long. Where is he? Our leader is gone. We don't know what we're doing. They begin to fret, and they cry out to Aaron to create an idol for them to worship. Think about this for just a second. These people are literally just weeks and months from being delivered, exiled from 400 years of slavery. And then all of a sudden, their hearts are turned against the one who has rescued them supernaturally, famously, powerfully from the grip of their tormentor. 
And they turn to Aaron and they ask for an idol. And Aaron does it. He allows them to take their gold. They melt the gold. They create what the scripture calls is a golden calf. And they begin to, to celebrate and dance and profane, do profane things around this idol. And it goes up before God. And God recognizes it first. And he tells Moses that they have sinned and I am going to destroy them. I'm going to destroy them. If I don't separate that, I am going to destroy them. And this is what Moses does. Moses goes back to God and begins to remind God of who God is. And I need you to hear this. Please hear this. Because this is the very first Yom Kippur. And he goes to God and he says, God, you are everlasting in your grace. You are everlasting in your mercy. You are faithful to the promises of your people. He reminds him by telling him, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who promised and said, I will set apart a people unto myself. I will covenant with a people. I will give them a land and a place, and my promises and my blessing will be toward them forever and ever. And Moses reminds him of that, and God relents. Let me ask you a question, because read it for yourself. Go look at it. Did Moses change God's mind? No. Here's what happened is that God was looking out to one person, not the group, but to one person, and looked at Moses and said, Moses, do you know who I am, even when everything is broken, and everything's falling apart, and everybody is sinful? And Moses says, yes, I know who you are. Moses goes down off the mountain. The Bible tells us that he breaks the tablets, throws them on the ground, he does a little bit of business, and it's pretty gnarly. Just read it for yourself. He needs to do what he needs to do. He cleans up camp, and then they repent. They repent, and they turn back to the grace and the goodness of God, and they're reminded again of the image of the one that they have been created in, and they're restored back to life. See, here's maybe some of the issue that we take and, and, and maybe why we need to understand this a little bit. Because we're going to see this perfectly clear as we understand how Yom Kippur is filled through, fulfilled through Jesus Christ. But if anybody here has a bad taste in their mouth, when words like repentance or repenting from sin comes into a conversation, then you do not have the right perspective of the loving Father who continually leads us in grace. See, because just like it is with my son, when I see him begin to bow up and there's a moment of decision in his heart to say, how am I going to respond? How am I going to react to something that is hitting my heart and the injustice and, and the, the pain of what's happening? And every person here has been there, haven't we? We've either been sinned against or we've sinned and we've hidden in our shame. And here's what, here's what happens that, that grieves God's heart concerning this and why he is so passionate about restoring us. Because it's not just about the sin that's being committed. It's not just about the brokenness to God's heart, but it is the diverse 
misunderstanding of our identity that happens when we sin. See, because when we step into sin, we stop living as the created, beautiful creation of the king. I hope that makes sense. And so God perpetually, continually leads us in grace. He leads us in grace. And God's first concern with us is that we gain a foothold and understanding of that in our life with him first. That we understand first that the need for grace must go this way. And do you know what that's called? That's called righteousness. Is that God in his grace, as he restores us, he brings us back into a place of righteousness. See, we feel it and we understand it. When we hit the place of our sin, we feel it. And what grieves God's heart more than anything is this, is the understanding that we don't feel worthy to stand before him when he is made a way. And so he brings us back first to the place of righteousness. And that only comes through the full measure of the grace that God gives and continually gives. He restores our righteousness. But there's another thing that we see here that Yom Kippur is about. And there's a second time. It's not the second time, but another instance of where this happened. And it happened with Ezra. And Ezra was a unique individual because Ezra was the only person to operate both as a priest and a prophet. And Ezra's responsibility with Nehemiah was to restore Israel back to Jerusalem from a place of exile. Israel had been in exile again for hundreds and hundreds of years. And God's heart was to return them back to Jerusalem. And so he put it on Nehemiah's heart, and he put it on Ezra's heart, and they began to be obedient to God and to begin to go and to see the walls of Jerusalem first rebuilt and then the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt so that the order could be established for God again to commune with man. And as Ezra did this, at the culmination of this event in Ezra, what we see is this is that Ezra drew the people to another Yom Kippur, a time of repentance. And this is the second thing that Yom Kippur does. If the first thing is this, is restores our righteousness through grace, the second thing is this. As prophet and as priest, the unique perspective was this, because the job of a prophet in Israel was to remind Israel, to remind Israel of the heart of God as it pertains to how they interact with other people. The heart of the priest was to remind Israel on how they interact with God. The heart of the prophet was to remind Israel about God's heart on how they interact with people. And so Ezra, as both priest and prophet, goes, and after the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, and after the reconstruction of the temple, and they begin to repent. They have a day of repentance. And Ezra looks at them. In Ezra 10, 
And he begins to remind them that they've done some things that have dishonored God in the way that they've related with other people. And as a nation, they agree and they humble themselves and they repent and they confess and God restores them. This is the second thing of Yom Kippur and why it's important for us to understand it. And I really, really want you to please hear this. Because as we look at a nation and as we see the brokenness in the nation and as we see crumbling around us and we wonder who's to blame or where the problem lies or how can we fix it or what can happen. And I honestly believe that God ordained Yom Kippur as a picture to say this is how a nation is restored. I want to draw your eyes to a very familiar passage in 2 Chronicles 7.14. I'm going to give a a bit of context to this. We could probably all recite this, most of us. It says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. This is what God spoke to Solomon on his deathbed after the construction of the temple which God ordained Solomon to do. And he told Solomon this scripture in context of the things that would happen down the road. And he said, Solomon, there there will be a time when the people turn from me. There will be a time when they forget about me. There will be a time when they do not acknowledge me. And as a result of this, things will happen. And it's going to be bad, Solomon. Their lands will dry up. They will, be, they will go into exile. They will no longer own their, the place that I've called them. And God speaks all of this to Solomon. And this is a terrible thing to hear from God. But what God says next is a reflection of His grace that has the authority and the ability to heal a land. And he says, but Solomon, if my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves, if they will turn from their wicked ways, if they will pray, I will hear and I will heal. I will hear and I will heal. I'll gather them back to myself and I will heal their land. If the first application of Yom Kippur deals with righteousness, the second application of Yom Kippur deals with holiness. And if holiness puts a bad taste in your mouth, then you don't understand the grace of Jesus Christ. Because holiness is not about what you wear. It's not about what you watch. It's not about what you drink. Hmm, I thought I'd get a bigger amen on that. Some of you have been lied to. (laughs) It's not about where you spend your Saturdays. It's about how much of the image of God is impacting your life. The righteousness and the grace and the understanding that you are a beautiful creation. That you are beloved and that you live as a manner of one who has been created by the king in such a way that it begins to impact the people around you and transform a land. See, because this is the second application of Yom Kippur. 
Because when Ezra sat him down and he said, guys, we can't do this anymore. And he didn't just say it's in God's heart. It broke God's heart. It also says it's not the image of the one you've been created in. Because Israel was never created in Jerusalem. And the temple was never created to be uh, in shambles and to be broken and to be the mockery of the world. But it was supposed to be a light on top of a hill that beamed out for the grace of God. Do you see that? And he called them back and he said, listen, if God will radically grip your heart, if you will walk in the righteousness and fall into that beautiful grace, it will transform the way you move on the earth. You're going to begin to live differently toward people. And I just want to present to you this, that if we would start in the area of holiness to be a reflection of the grace of Jesus Christ that transformed our hearts toward people, we would begin to see transformation on this land. We would begin to see healing on this land. Let's talk about Jesus Christ in Yom Kippur. All right. Everybody all right? All right. Oftentimes, we don't want to look at these things because they feel like we're going to the woodshed, and that's not the case at all. We have a loving Father who is abundant in grace, whose thoughts and his attention are always toward us. He loves us eternally. He loves us powerfully beyond our sin. But what we see in Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of Yom Kippur is that he's broken every stranglehold of sin. I want to read to you in Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. Because what we see in Yom Kippur through the sacrifice is this substitutionary atonement and the removal of sin. In Hebrews 9, 11 through 15, it says this, but when Christ came as our high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance Now that he has died as a ransom to set free from the sins committed under the first covenant. I want you to drop down to verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why was the blood sacrifice necessary on Yom Kippur and throughout the year for the cleansing of sin? Is because life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. It speaks to the original intent. 
That the blood that flows through us, get ready for this, is different than the blood that flows through Fido, your dog. I know you love Fido. I know you love your little dog. But your blood is different. Your blood is much different. See, your blood contains the very image of God in it. It was created in such a manner to be able to stand before God. And the only way we understand this is by looking back at the very first creation. Looking back at Adam and looking back at Eve. When God created them, He did not create them apart from His glory. He stood with them. He walked with them. They saw Him. He saw them. They walked in the cool of the day. They walked hand in hand. They walked side by side. God created us to commune, to fellowship, to relate to Him. The second that sin entered the equation, immediately shame followed, didn't it? When Eve took and bit the fruit and gave it to Adam and he ate of it, immediately they realized their nakedness, their shame, and their guilt, that they had sinned before God and they did something which is so futile as they tried to hide from God. God saw them, He knew them, and He knew that the decision in their heart broke, broke relationship with them. But the Scripture we just read says something so powerful about the very heart of God that is fulfilled through Jesus Christ, and it's this, is that God could not stand to be separated from man. He could not stand to be separated from man. Even though sin was intolerable and disgusting to Him, Man was not. I need to say that again. Because some of you, until you understand that there is a difference between you and your sin, will never fully realize the grace of Jesus Christ. See, because God did not hate man, God hated sin. He loved man. How do you know? Because what we just read in Hebrews tells us this. See, Jesus Christ was not the backup plan. It wasn't that the sacrificial system failed or wasn't enough. It was never intended to be enough. All it was, the Scripture tells us, was a school teacher. All it was was a marker to show us that Jesus Christ is a sufficiency. And how Jesus Christ fulfilled Yom Kippur, the need for repentance is this. Is that He isn't a coat and He isn't a bull. No, He is the Son of God. And as the Son of God who laid Himself down, who came to this earth, holy man, why did Jesus have to come as man? Why couldn't this all been done behind the sins in, in heaven? In the place where we don't see? What, what, why, why, why did Jesus have to come to earth? Have you ever thought about that? And the reason why is this, is because when Jesus came fully as man and fully as God, He did two things. Not only did He satisfy through His blood every requirement and every penalty and every bit of mark of shame that sin would ever bring to humanity, past, present, or future, but He also came and lived a sinless life as a man. He overcame. And in that mark, what Jesus shows us as the substitutionary atonement is this, is that because He overcame through Him, 
we can also overcome. See, there is a different pattern. There is a different way. There is a way to live this life in peace. There is a way to live this life in hope. There is a way to live this life in the light of the glory of the one we've been created in. And Jesus Christ showed us that. Have you ever thought about Matthew 4 before? 4 before? What happened in Matthew 4? Jesus has a showdown with Satan, doesn't he? He's in the wilderness. We've talked about this. Many of you understand and know this story. The Bible actually tells us that God led him into the wilderness. He wasn't wandering around. He wasn't just going out there trying to get a, uh, have a getaway weekend. No, he was out there on a mission. For 40 days he stayed out there. He fasted and he prayed. And at the end of that, what happens? Satan comes and tries to tempt Jesus. Why? Because he recognizes the vulnerability and the frailty of his humanity, but he failed to see his divinity. And in that moment, Jesus does something that should give us the greatest understanding of the power of grace in our behalf. No, we cannot overcome sin, but Jesus Christ did it for us. You don't have to overcome sin. You don't have to be greater than the thing that is trying to bring you down, the thing that is choking you, the thing that haunts you at night. You don't have to be greater than it because Jesus Christ is greater than it. He did it. He did it. He did it. He was the perfect substitutionary atonement. He did it before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13.8 says. And here's what this means. Is that the blood that Jesus shed at Calvary's cross didn't just cover the sins of the moment, didn't just cover the sins of the people of that day, but it covered the sins of past, present, and future. It was complete. See, this is what substitutionary atonement means. And this is why the scripture we re- read in Hebrews says this, that we don't have to go to, bo- to, to goats and to bulls anymore. That we don't have to do that because that was never complete. That was never the mark that God was looking for. He could only fully satisfy it in himself. Jesus isn't contained by time. He does not he isn't controlled within a 24-hour day. He doesn't look at his watch or check his cell phone a hundred times a day. The reason why is because he holds time between his hands. Scripture tells us that he was there at the creation, and he will be there at the very end of the renewal of all things. He is both the Alpha and he is the Omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. And because he is the one who holds time in his hand, his sacrifice sat outside of time and covers the whole scope of mankind from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, all the way to the very end, to the renewal of all things. And that sacrifice was fully met in him, and it covers the sin of any person that any person could ever commit even the ones that we have not committed yet. I know that's a strange thing to think about, but that's the full measure of grace. And that's what we need to understand through Jesus Christ. 
That's what we need to lean into. That's what we need to be reminded of in our righteousness, of who we sit in, in Jesus Christ, and we sit so firmly there. The second thing that I want you to see about Jesus Christ in Yom Kippur is this, is that the full wrath of sin was put upon Jesus Christ. If you've ever been lied to in your sin by the enemy, by the enemy, that you're unworthy, that you're wicked, and I'm going to tell you why this is particularly offensive to God. Because when God looks at you, He sees you as beautiful. He sees you as beloved. He sees you as His perfect creation. He does. He does. He is creator and He is king. That is His divine right and that's how He sees it. But how did God satisfy the sin issue? If sin is so offensive to God, how did God satisfy the sin issue in such a way that He could look at man and forever see man as beloved. Because the Bible tells us that the full wrath of sin was put upon Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ carried the full wrath of sin upon himself. And he fully satisfied it in his sacrifice. That is the perfect picture of what the term substitutionary atonement means. And I want you to hear that. Because if you've ever battled with the shame and the condemnation of sin, the grace of Jesus Christ wants to free you today. Because that wrath has not been placed on you. That shame has not been placed on you. Jesus took it and he satisfied it. Well, pastor, you don't know. I'm a wretched person. I've done terrible things. And I would look back at you and say, you need to understand the great grace of Jesus Christ. Because God knew that you could never satisfy that. He knew that you could never make it right. You could never cover the distance. But because He loved you so much, He sent Himself in Jesus Christ to cover it. To cover not just the distance, but to cover the shame. To cover the wrath. To cover the penalty. You remember the scapegoat we talked about. Jesus Christ is also the scapegoat. All of the sins were placed upon Him of all creation. But Jesus Christ, just like the goat that was led out into the wilderness with the the stain of the scarlet cord around them that turned white at the cross when the sins of humanity were placed upon Him. The work didn't finish there, did it? No. What makes the grace of Jesus Christ so powerful is not just the cross, but the completion of the resurrection. And what we see through the resurrection is this, is that the sacrifice was received, it was honored, it was taken on, it was fully satisfied in Jesus Christ, and yet sin could not hold Jesus down. What does that say for you and me? It's this, is that when we confess our sins, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful, He is just, and He will cleanse us from all what? unrighteousness. Why? Because sin is not a problem for God because of Jesus Christ. And what God wants to do is to get you back into the understanding that you are the created image of himself called to do the good things that he has called and put in your life to do. 
And at the resurrection, this is what we see. Is that the stain of the red turned white, didn't it? The stain of the red turned white. The blood that was shed, the sacrifice that was made, the sin that was thrust upon Jesus Christ was fully satisfied. And the scripture tells us something very powerful. In Psalm 103, 12. It says this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the measure of the grace of Jesus Christ. Justin, come on up, man. That when we come to him, when we humble ourselves before him, in those moments that we fall short, and we all fall short, I fall short. We all fall short. We all get knocked off kilter from time to time. Sometimes things happen to us that aren't fair in our life, that we don't understand, that shake us to our very core. And they try to knock us off the understanding of who we are. In those times, we have to fall upon the grace of Jesus Christ. Because in that grace, we see something. We're reminded of the one whose image we've been created in. We begin to hear God's thoughts again toward us. We begin to hear his thoughts of love toward us. We begin to hear his heart toward us. We begin to hear his future and the hope he has called us in. And then he makes a great exchange. I'm going to say something bold to you guys. Because there's two acts of repentance that we need to always be mindful of. And I'm using my terms right now. I'm not using theological terms. We live in a community that understands church. I'm sure every person here somehow is connected to church somewhere in their life. Maybe you went to vacation Bible school, kids' church. Or maybe you're like me. that you, Your bottom's always been in a pew or on a chair in a church. And the very first act of repentance that we all need to come to is that when the Holy Spirit knocks on our door of our heart and says, Hey, you do not yet know the love of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement. And we humble our hearts. And this is what we call, we coined the phrase, it's not in the Bible, but we we use this phrase, and this is the phrase, that we invite Jesus into our heart. We make Him the Lord and the Savior of of our life. And this is the first agreement that we must make. This is the security that we have in Jesus Christ, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That no matter how many breaths we have after that moment, that whatever happens, that the last breath we take, that we'll stand face to face with Jesus Christ. But here's where we've gone wrong, maybe a little bit. Just as not Freedom Christian Fellowship, but as a church as a whole, is that we've lost sight of this idea that anytime we fall or anytime we fail, that possibly... Some of the reasons why we get stuck in some sins that we go, 
hey, I can't seem to shake. No matter what you call them, strongholds or addictions or anything like that, it's because we don't understand the grace of Jesus Christ. See, because the grace of Jesus Christ is not for just when we fail, it's for something that we need every day. See, and if Yom Kippur failed in any means, and why Jesus Christ fulfilled it, and why we need to understand it is this, it's because Yom Kippur was once a year. But the revelation of righteousness is 365 days a year, every hour of the day, every minute of the hour, of our life. And we have to perpetually live in that understanding that yes, there are going to be times that our thoughts get sidetracked and we get off base and our thoughts are dishonoring to God or yes, our actions, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Maybe we shouldn't have waved at somebody on the road with one finger. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Y'all laugh because he did it. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have yelled so loud at that ref and hoped that he got run over after the game. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I shouldn't hold on to unforgiveness so long, even though that person really hurt me and I didn't deserve that. But God, I'm right. Maybe I shouldn't hold on to the wise so long. God, why did you let that happen to mom, dad? Why did that happen to that person? Because maybe it's in the picture of grace that we get the clear view of the importance of standing before God in His created image with a future and a hope. Filled with the everlasting power of His grace working in our behalf. To help us to overcome anything and everything that stands in the way of His calling. And what happens to a people of God that begin to stand in that revelation fully through Jesus Christ? Begin to stand confidently in their righteousness and begin to take and say, God... I see it this way, but God, I want to release it this way. See, because if you could forgive me, then I can forgive them. God, if you can heal me from this hurt, then I can help them find freedom from the hurt they're facing. God, if you could bridge the gap that separated me from you because of my doing. Because you love me. Could I cross over a city and see healing? Could I look past things that maybe have scared me or shook me? Could I look past differences? Could your grace affect me that way, God? Because this is what righteousness is. I just want to close with a few questions. What's our response? We need to come to the great grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you need to repent, then repent. 
It's the easiest thing to do. It's like giving up. I can't do it. I need you, Jesus. He's faithful and he's just. We need to grow in the truth of his mercy and grace. It's today a day where we let go of wrong thinking. Maybe we switch from being being a victim to being a victor today. Maybe today is a day that we begin to build a habit of talking to God, of reading His Word and fellowshipping with Him. Maybe part of the way that we honor the righteousness and keep ourselves in the revelation of grace is just practical. Maybe it's turning off certain things and tuning into something that shows us the heart of God. Maybe today we let yesterday go because Jesus did it for us. What if your freedom today is a matter of you changing your perspective about who you call yourself? That your yesterday doesn't define you. It doesn't define you. The only thing that defines you is whose image you've been created in and the grace that carries you through. We need to pray and we need to contemplate our actions and our choices. If there's any simple truth that's found through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it's this. is that the people stopped. The people stopped. They stopped doing what they've always done. They stopped going to work. Amen? Anybody want to do that? And they contemplated their actions and their choices. Are we reflecting every day on the great grace that Jesus Christ has given to us? Are we looking and understanding the truth of our identity that we find through Him as Creator? And then finally... Let's find some ways to release words of healing, of life, of hope, and future. I can't say this clearly enough. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, and if you don't, the smartest, best decision you could do is to yield to that grace today. By simply saying, Jesus, I believe you and I receive you. But if you are somebody who knows Jesus Christ, then our words and our actions have to, have to, have to mirror the grace that we live in. They have to. As a people of God, our prayers of intercession must model that of Moses. To say, God, when you see the brokenness of our land, I want to remind you of who you are. That you are faithful. That you are true. That you are good. That your promises endure. And when our prayers begin to model that, our hearts begin to see that. And as our hearts begin to see that, then our words must follow that as we speak to people, as we post on social media, 
as we choose to relate and interrelate with our family and our coworkers in our schools, in our community, they must, they must connect to that grace. And when we stay in that place, what we're saying is this, is we're following the model in 2 Chronicles 7.14. There's a reason why God looked and told Solomon that Solomon, it doesn't, it's not just about repentance. Solomon, it's not just about that. But first, you must humble yourself. And the power of humility and the understanding of grace is this. It's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement about the authority that you're under. Whose authority are you under? And when you're under the authority of grace, then your life and your actions and your words and the places you go, the things you talk about, the things that you say to people are going to be filled with grace. And when grace comes into the situation where there's been hurt and there's been pain and there's been brokenness, it creates a divide and it separates and it allows truth to come in and it allows healing to come in. It allows the Holy Spirit room to heal brokenness. But it starts in the position of our grace. Amen. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, I thank you. Lord, as we look at your word and as we look at the things that you set aside in your word to remind us about the truth of who you are. God, yes, we see it. We see it. And Lord, we know that in a sense, God, that there was just a few weeks ago a season where these two feasts were celebrated, God. But Father, we see it completely fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And we're asking you today, today, and I'm asking in behalf of every person here, that the revelation of your grace, Jesus, would fill our hearts. That Father, if there is any person here that is living under the lie through the power of sin that brings condemnation or brokenness or hurt, that the grace of Jesus Christ would come and cover and heal completely. That it would remind them, remind us of the truth that we've been created in the image of the Creator, the King. God, help us in our daily lives to live in this grace, that we carry this grace God, every day that we would walk and understand that it is only through the grace of Jesus Christ that we stand. But it is your heart's desire to continually renew your love and your passion, your hope and your future for us. And so, God, we we receive that now. We receive that now through Jesus Christ. Amen, 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 amen. Thank you